Welcome to Maximum Mom with Elise Bowie, where you'll hear from women who are navigating the same messy journey as you. Lawyering, entrepreneurship, and mothering. What a trifecta. We're here to share tips, resources, wins, losses, and encouragement for moms who are raising a family while building a law firm. So you feel less alone in your journey toward a fulfilling career and being the best mom you can be. Thanks for joining me today. We are back for the Maximum Mom podcast. Today, I have a super special guest that I'm so excited to introduce. And of course, I might mess up her name because you all know I'm bad with names, but Laura Bazelon. Laura, did I do that right? Very good. But just close, huh? Okay. (laughs) She is a law professor and writer. She's been the recipient of the McDowell and Mesa Refuge Residencies, and her op-eds and essays have been published in the New York Times, the Atlantic Magazine, New York Magazine, Washington Post, Slate, and Politico, among other media outlets. She is the author of A Good Mother, Rectify the Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction, and her newest nonfiction book, which I cannot wait to talk about, Ambitious Like a Mother, Why Prioritizing Your Job is Good for Your Kids. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm just so excited to dig in with you. First, I really like to understand a little bit about what makes you a mom? Like, who do you have at home? We'll just get that out of the way as we start this. I have two beautiful, intelligent, sensitive kids. One is a 13-year-old boy and one is an 11-year-old girl. So they're in eighth grade and sixth grade. Oh, you're in like middle school fun. Yes. That's kind of awesome. (laughs) I love that. Okay. And so right now you're currently teaching, right? At the San Francisco School of Law? It's the University of San Francisco School of Law. Yes, I'm a full-time professor there. And what do you teach? What is your... My main job is that I run two different clinics. One is a juvenile and criminal clinic, and one is a racial justice clinic. So my primary job is to teach my students how to be lawyers. We have actual cases, so we litigate in the clinic. And there are all different kinds of cases with really diverse clients. The goal is really, it's kind of like medical school when you have a residency and you learn how to do heart surgery by doing heart surgery. We learn how to litigate by actually litigating and the law school subsidizes it. So it's essentially like running a pro bono law firm out of a law school. Awesome. Now, how many students do you have at any given time that you're supervising? It depends. It's usually somewhere between 10 and 15. Wow. Fascinating. And do they do all phases of litigation, like trial work as well as appellate work, or do they stop at the trial level? It depends. So in the defense clinic where they're representing people who are accused of misdemeanors in San Francisco Superior Court, they're starting from the very beginning and seeing the case through to the end. So those are petty thefts, DUIs, drug possession, things like that. And then in the racial justice clinic, it's really varied. We do a lot of post-conviction cases. So the trial is long over and so are the appeals are coming back in usually on some kind of a habeas. And then we do some school disciplinary hearings, which are, you know, they're not in court and have their own internal roles. Yeah, they sure do. Yeah, they do. Yeah, that is awesome. Well, I would love to talk to you about your newest book. I mean, I just kind of love the title. Ambitious Like a Mother is just so fun. Why prioritizing your career is good for your kids. I mean, I would say that You argue in this book that not only can we prioritize our career, but that we should prioritize our careers. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I interviewed one of the women I interviewed was a wealth management consultant. And she told me that the most financially precarious decision that a woman can make is to get married. And that means oftentimes that women cede control of their finances. They may be the person paying the bills, but they're not the person managing the money. At times they take a step back. And so perhaps they're not the primary breadwinner, but that goes on for a long time. And then if the person that they're married to either, you know, dies early or there's a divorce or some sort of separation or decline in that spouse's employment, they are really at at great risk. And so my feeling, and this is something I learned from my mom, is that it was really important to be able to have your own money and make your own money and be financially independent as a woman and as a mother. And so that's why I think it makes sense from a financial perspective to make your career a priority. And I think also that you're modeling certain traits for your kids that you want them to have, like being resilient and being independent. Yeah, I think those are all such good points. And as somebody who, you know, sits on the other side of divorces as a divorce attorney, I mean, I can attest to many a woman who has just really harmed themselves financially. And the divorce is that, you know, real turning point in them understanding the impact of what the marriage has actually done to them financially and what it's going to do for years to come as well. You know, the amount of rebuilding. And I mean, I was somebody who stayed at home for years with my children and it has been, you know, a a solid decade plus of rebuilding and, you know, you'd never get back those monies that you don't earn and save and put aside those, you know, first dollars kind of at the beginning of your career, you know, for retirement and paying off student loan debt and other things like that. So um, I think that's right. Yeah, it's really interesting. What inspired you to write a book about moms prioritizing their careers? I was inspired to write it because I felt this frustration and I think perhaps shared with some of the women that I know that were always being asked how we balance everything with this idea being that we have everything perfectly balanced and that that's something to strive for, that that's even achievable. And that were there ever to be a decision to be made about whether to say help a client or go to the volleyball game, of course we would go to the volleyball game. All of this to me was frustrating. And I felt very gendered because nobody ever asks dads how they balance it all. And I don't believe in balance. I don't think it's even possible. And so when you tell women to strive for, you ask them how well they're doing and achieving it, you're sort of setting them up to fail. And so I wrote an op-ed about how there have been times in my career where I have picked my job because at that particular moment in time, the person I was trying to help, they just needed me more, which isn't to say I left my children by the side of the road or neglected or abandoned them. It's to say that there are other people who are good caregivers who you can rely on when the time comes and you need to actually turn your focus to your work. And so that was the point I was making. I didn't think it was going to be particularly controversial, but apparently it sparked a huge reaction. (laughs) And I went on Good Morning America and the Tamron Hall show and talked to a lot of different women along the way who responded to what I had written. And I thought, I think there's a bigger point to be made and there are more stories to tell and more research to be done. So that's how the book got started. 
Amazing. I mean, I just, I love the idea. And I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly. This idea of balance is absurd. It's not even slightly reasonable, nor possible, nor to me, should it even be the goal anytime. Like, I feel like we go through all these different cycles of time and things happen. I mean, I personally call it life work integration. I just have to figure out how to make all my stuff work. And sometimes that's I'm putting my kids ahead because maybe they have some big need. Other times I'm putting clients ahead, my firm ahead, whatever. I mean, I just have to look at the situation nuance in a nuanced way and make a a responsible, professional, ethical decision. And I think a lot gets weighed into those decisions and it can't just be volleyball versus a client meeting. I mean, it's a lot more complex than that. It is, and always presenting it as, of course, you're going to pick the volleyball game does a real disservice to all involved for a variety of reasons. Completely. I mean, like the thought that you could have a client, I mean, you know, in the type of work you might be supervising, I mean, you could have a client looking at losing their freedom and, I mean, attending one of 10, 20, 100 volleyball games, it might be more important to go to court and argue for that client's freedom than attend that volleyball game, which probably could be recorded and you could probably enjoy it at another time, be able to, I mean, there's lots of things that you can do. And I just think that, I mean, we could have a whole conversation about how parenting has turned into this, I mean, insane expectations on parents of, you know, people sometimes call helicopter parenting or lawnmower parenting, this idea that we have to be everywhere at every practice. And I'm like, have we lost our minds completely? (laughs) I mean, kids can attend volleyball practice without parents watching them. And without, I mean, I don't know. I just think we've really, I, I don't know exactly what we're creating in this, but I worry about the resilience of children. It does seem like we're, overcorrecting. And it may be that some of us felt, oh, I wish my parents had been present at more things, but it does seem like we've swung wildly in the other direction. And almost all of the expectation is that the mother is going to be there, not the father. Right. I mean, have you, I'm sure you have, have you read Eve Rodsky's Fair Play? Yes. What do you think about that in conjunction with, you know, your work and your research? I think she makes some really good points. Actually, I think it's a movie now. I just saw her interview. Yes, which I'm excited to see. Yes, a documentary by uh, Jennifer Seabell Newsom, right? Correct. Yeah, I'm interested to see that. I mean, I think she makes some really important points about parody and we should all be listening closely. A lot of people are. I think many, many people read that book. It was quite successful. Yeah, I, I just am a huge fan of Fair Play. I mean, just today, somebody posted something on LinkedIn about how they're in the sandwich generation. And they were talking about their worry about their mom, their child and their work. And I was like, yeah. And you don't have to succumb to this as being all you. I mean, this person happens to be, you know, in a, in a heterosexual marriage. And I was like, you know, what is your husband doing to share in some of these worries that, you know, you're finding yourself in. And it was interesting because there was no acknowledgement that, you know, it could be just a a shared thing where you could, you know, think about dividing it up. And so as my usual self, I had to put a plug in for fair play because I was like, you know, you don't have to 
suffer in this like you think you do. And I, I sometimes think we forget that we're choosing what to do and what not to do, what to worry about, what not to worry about, where to show up. I mean, that's why I think your book was so powerful about helping people to see not only why it could be good for the mom, but how it can be good for your kids as well. I mean, what did some of your research show in this regard? I was trepidatious about the research. I was worried about it, but actually it was really affirming. I mean, it shows that the children of working mothers do just as well, if not better, on a variety of metrics than the children of mothers who stay at home. And I don't say that to start a mommy war because I really don't put a value judgment on people who stay at home if that's what you want and you can afford it more power to you. But this idea that it's always better is not empirically valid. And in fact, the daughters of working mothers, they tend to earn more money. And the sons of working mothers tend to believe in more parity at home, which I think is part of what Fair Play is talking about, this idea that a lot of parenting is gendered in our culture, but as a practical matter should not be because there isn't anything particularly maternal about scheduling a doctor's appointment or changing a diaper. A lot of the things that you do for kids the dad or the grandmother or the babysitter can do just as well. And it's about really sharing this labor and not sort of assuming that if it's not done by the mother, the child is going to be harmed in some kind of long-term way. Exactly. I mean, I joke about laundry. I'm like, I don't know who decided women are, you know, the queens of laundry. I mean, I was the queen of ruining laundry, changing colors, putting fuzzy things on the wrong. And so, and my family would complain. And finally, I was like, you know, this is a fine point. I kind of stink at this. Like, why am I doing this? I was like, I should not be doing something that I do not excel at. So I started teaching my kids early, early on to do their own laundry. I mean, like eight, I was like, laundry is all you. Like, I never want to see your dirty clothes again. This is a skill you got. It is easy. The machine does most of it. Like, and I just really trained them. And then that really took off in our family about why do I think I need to make a lunch or do this? I'm like, these are all trainable, delegatable tasks that children can do and can be involved in and learn. And yeah, I mean, some people would say I created hyper independent children, but I was like, I don't have any lunch skills, you know? or special laundry skills. They didn't mention that in law school anywhere, <laughs> you know? No, I'm sure your kids are excited to be able to go off and be independent and know that they can do their own laundry and make their own food. It's actually, these are helpful skills to have. Exactly. Well, and it's something that I find, it's interesting to hear your research. One of the things that we did as, in our family was when our children became juniors in high school, they're all grown now. We have six between 20 and 30. So they're all grown, all super independent, you know, all on their own. When they become juniors in high school, though, we step away. We have this very distinct, like, you're on your own now. You're making your doctor appointments, your dental appointments, you're dealing with your car insurance, you're dealing with school absences, you know, I mean, and we really do this kind of two-year thing as juniors and seniors to get them ready to go on to college so that college is really a non-issue. You know, they've already done it all, but, you know, I've been able to kind of oversee it. And if they're, you know, miserably failing at showing up at a doctor appointment, I'm going to nudge them along and be like, you know, you're not going to be able to play football if you don't get this, you know, physical or whatever. But I found that it was a very helpful thing in allowing them to just take over their lives, you know, so that, they then could go to college and just didn't miss a beat. I think that's a great idea. I might implement it. 
And I think when your kids show an interest in doing things on their own, you should encourage it. My son really enjoys making his own food. I'm more than happy to seed the kitchen space. We're applying to high schools right now and he's doing his own research. And I think that's fantastic. And if he's the one who ends up making the ultimate decision because he looked into it and he knows what's going to work for him, then that's great. Absolutely. The buy-in he's going to have at that school is going to be totally different, you know, than if you just said, oh, here's a school I chose, you know, you have no knowledge, no nothing, and I'm sure you'll love it. Right. Just, yeah, I think that's awesome. Well, one of the other things when I think about your book and just the research is about the idea of opening your mind to kind of unexpected and innovative ways of thinking about problems and problem solving. I mean, you seem to have a pretty broad idea of, you know, kind of not being intractable in your problem solving. Talk about that some. I think that with my children, I really try to not infantilize them. And maybe I treat them too much like they're adults. At this point, though, they're 11 and 13. They're highly articulate. They read all the time. They've had a lot of life experience because they had to go through their father and I separating and then divorcing, although they were little. But they are kind of wise and mature. And so I don't condescend to them. And, you know, when we have issues, they're way past the temper tantrum stage. And I think that sometimes just treating them like a normal human being instead of someone who needs to be wrapped up in something very cozy, like an egg that you're about to drop off a bridge, but you wanted to survive the fall. Instead, just saying, I think you're a pretty hardy person and we can have an honest conversation about this issue works better than the bubble wrap. Oh, I could not agree with you more. I just, I sometimes am I've really taken aback how people are trying to teach their children to become adults by sheltering them in such a way from everything. I'm like, how are we helping them learn to navigate difficult circumstances, being able to think through those and try on different thinking and different, you know, problem solving skills. To me, there's some real learning in how to creatively problem solve, you know, like, How do you wrap your head around a big problem? Like, do you look at it in one way and then flip it? Do you try to look at it in all the different ways? You know, like, how do you actually view it? And one of the things I was actually talking to a friend this weekend, we were joking about, you know, a child. I had a child who broke our big screen TV with a lacrosse ball. And I was like, well, no problem. You know, I'll get a new TV. You know, your siblings will be able to have their TV. I'm like, but you won't be able to watch it because, you know, you wouldn't have paid for what you broke. And I'm like, you know, you're going to need to work and, you know, pay off the cost of this TV. And and I explained about, you know, interest. So I showed him what it would be if I put it on a credit card, what that interest would be. And I was like, so you'll need to pay that off since you're using my money to replace this thing. And he was kind of like, whoa, that's going to be a lot of work for me, you know, to pay that off. And I was like, if you show up at college and you break your college roommate's TV, he is not going to be mad at all. He, but he is going to expect a new TV in about an hour. Like, and if you don't produce a new TV in about an hour, then he is going to be mad, rightfully so, because you have ruined his possession. And I was like, it's kind of the exact same thing, even though you're only 11. But I was like, it's the exact same thing. And you have to learn, you know, what happens when you ruin somebody's something and how do you replace it? And what skills do you need to go replace it? And, you know, people were like, I can't believe you made your child pay that much. And I'm like, 
he's the one who broke the TV. Like I had nothing to do with the breaking of the TV. And I thought, I mean, it was a really good lesson. Trust me, that child never threw a lacrosse ball around the TV again. I was about to say that. It probably never happened again. Never. Nor with his younger brothers. Whenever they were doing something, he would remind them of his snowblowing adventure and rock moving adventure that he had to go through to pay for this new TV. <laughs> he was like, he was like, I assure you, you do not want to break this. And no. I thought, you know, great lesson. <laughs> and so, yeah, I do just sometimes think we're spending so much time focused on what we as moms need to do to protect our children rather than how are we modeling behavior that we want them to see out in the world and how are we helping them gain the skills of the model behavior? Like how do we help them become hardworking, good work ethic, independent, creative, problem-solving, non-entitled humans, you know? <laughs> and I think also given that we're living through this very unprecedented era of having our rights rolled back. It's pretty extraordinary, especially for women, that my daughter is going to grow up in America where abortion is going to be illegal in half the states. When I was growing up, it was a settled constitutional right. And I think we've got to really understand that there's a lot of work to be done just to take back what was lost, never mind move forward. And we want our children to be able to do that. It's a really difficult struggle. I mean, a couple of weeks ago in my class, we we're doing a mock trial, which is based on a real case that we're currently litigating. And I was explaining to my daughter, we were doing direct and cross-examination and she asked if she could be the judge. And I said, no, you're 11, you're in sixth grade and it's during school. And we kind of fought about it. And then she walked off and then she came back and she had made a PowerPoint presentation about why she should be the judge. And it was starting with Judge Judy and a picture of her and kind of a nuanced critique of Judge Judy and then going into the fact that she knew all about this case because it's real and I talk about it. So she didn't need to be brought up to speed. And what do judges really do except say sustained and overruled? She could do that. And by the end of this presentation, she had changed my mind. I picked her up early from school. I brought her to my classroom. I put her in a very too large robe and we were in this model courtroom. She got up on the dais and with my staff attorney's help, made a bunch of rulings. And, you know, in retrospect, I, I think that was the right thing because you really want to encourage young children to believe that they can do things rather than sort of stamp out their enthusiasm. And she learned a lot. And so did my students. I don't think that they were done a disservice. In fact, I told them afterwards that she was much more savvy as an 11 year old probably than their average juror. Running your own practice can be scary, whether you're worried about where the next case will come from, feeling like you're losing control over your growing firm, or frustrated from being out of touch with everyone working under your license, the stress can be overwhelming. We will show you how to turn that fear into a driving force of clarity, focus, stability, and confidence that eliminates the roller coaster of guilt-ridden second-guessing and mistake-making to get you off that hamster wheel for good. Maximum Lawyer and Minimum Time is a step-by-step -step playbook that shows you how to identify what your firm needs and how to proactively get it at every stage of the game so you are prepped and excited for the inevitable growth that will follow. Name the lifestyle that you want and we'll show you how to become a Maximum Lawyer in Minimum Time. Find out more by going to MaximumLawyer.com forward slash course. 
hundred percent. I just think that's the greatest thing ever. Imagine the power of that experience for your daughter and her friends, you know, as they, I mean, that is going to absolutely change the whole course of her life that she was able to do that. Whereas that day of school, who knows what she was going to learn. <laughs> I decided that missing a couple of hours, she was going to learn more. Oh, on this other end and that she had won the argument. And so she deserves a reward because she had made the best argument. My argument, you're 11 and you need to go to school was not as powerful as her counter argument. Exactly. I just love that. That is the greatest story ever. I love that. And I love that she made a PowerPoint presentation for you. I can't wait to see what she does later in her life. I know. I know. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. We have my oldest daughter just started law school at American in DC this year. And I mean, we have joked with her since she was like two. I mean, she has been ready to, you know, tackle the world. And as somebody who's been very involved in reproductive rights, she's worked for NARAL for Planned Parenthood. She is like, I mean, fervent about reproductive rights. And you know, she really felt like going to law school was where, you know, she needed to go next to be able to make some real change. I mean, I think for her watching these rights get rolled back as she worked in communications at NARAL was horrendous. I mean, it has been really difficult, you know, and as a mom watching these things change when like you during my lifetime, these have been completely settled issues, <laughs> like not even I mean, it didn't occur to me this could happen, to be honest with you. Like, I I have listened to her for years, though, I have to tell you. She has been telling me that this is coming for years. And I kind of was like, I think that's just hyperbolic. Like, I think it'll be okay. And she was like, no, mom, you're not understanding, you know, and proved she was right on this. It's really, really depressing that we're handing them this oh. situation. And so... They need to be motivated and resilient. I mean, congratulations. It sounds like you have that in your daughter. I'm sure she'll be an excellent lawyer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She'll be awesome. And I love watching her in action. I mean, but again, I think so much of that comes from kind of like you're talking about having those real conversations too, like not making everything unicorns and roses when it's not unicorns and roses, you know, like. We have a, you know, one of those family folklore things where one day she came back from, we used to live in Minnesota. So she was at the Mall of America, came back with like a little gift bag. You know, the stores sometimes give you like a free gift or whatever. And so she's in the car and she's all excited about her gift bag. And she was probably 11. This was like post Hurricane Katrina. So we had moved already a few times. And I said something and I was like, you know, I wonder how many 11 year old girls are tied to a sewing machine in Bangladesh to make this free gift bag. Mm. And she was like, what are you talking about, mom? And I was like, well, there's some serious child labor law issues with this company, you know, that you went to. And so I was like, you know, when we get home, why don't we look into this? At the time I was homeschooling my kids. So it was a perfect opportunity to look into some of this, understand a little bit about the culture in Bangladesh and just different things. So we kind of explored this and wow, was her, were her eyes really open to, you know, what some of these free things that we get, you know, what they mean for other people and what, you know, a lot of the corporations do. And I mean, it changed her whole outlook on shopping, you know, mm -hmm. like, 
what did she need and what, you know, and really make more intentional decisions about where did she shop? You know, what were the labor practices of the, the organization she was, you know, using her babysitting dollars to support? Like, you know, what did she want to support? And I mean, again, many friends were like, at least don't you think that was a little much? And I'm like, no, I actually don't. I'm like, she was working babysitting. Why shouldn't she know where her money is going and, you know, what is happening? Like, why would I want her to just believe that all stores in the Mall of America are lovely, wonderful places? Because that's not reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a very important lesson. And it's hard because our culture is one of instant gratification. And there's cheap clothing everywhere. Now we have this company, Sheen, which is making, you know, $6 dresses. And it's hard because it costs $25 to get an entire wardrobe, essentially. And that's obviously on the backs of people who are being completely exploited. And so you're constantly in this balancing act of, well, do I get my kid this hoodie, which they don't need, knowing where it came from? And then the explanation, and you did the hard work of the explanation. Yeah, but I think sometimes those things, you know, are helpful, again, in that creative problem solving, you know, how do you look at these issues? And I just think kids, I think kids can, they're eager to learn so many things. And Mm -hmm. I find that if we share a lot of things, and obviously, you need to be age appropriate, you know, obviously, you're not trying to like shock them or whatever, or cause any kind of mental health problems, but we can handle a lot of things and can be curious. And then they go on their own curious paths. Mm-hmm. And it kind of brings me when we think of success. I mean, again, you know, you think of a lot of people, I think, think of success in the terms just of money, like, and that is their way to think of success. And I know you think of success in different areas. I mean, how do you think of success? I don't measure success in terms of money, which is to say, and you know this, when you have a law degree and a certain kind of credential, you can go and work for a big law firm and you can make a lot of money. And that's never interested me. I know there are plenty of people who do do that. And some of them have really good careers and they're happy. That just wasn't what I wanted to do with my law degree. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to be a public defender. I wanted to litigate civil rights issues. I wanted to do the kinds of things that were more meaningful to me. And so I guess the way I measure success is, does your work give you purpose and meaning? Do you wake up every day or most days excited to do your job? Do you feel like it's fulfilling? And do you feel like you're helping people and making the kind of change that you want to see? And so if my kids wake up every morning and they can answer that question, yes, to me, that is success. I don't think you need three houses or really fancy cars. I think you need one house that's a decent size that you can afford to live in comfortably and find work that allows you to make that happen. But I have not defined success by wealth. It's not really the way that I was raised at all. And I just think that people who do tend often to be unhappy. I think you're exactly right. And I think that it is, I sometimes think people sacrifice themselves, you know, a lot in that race to monetary success. And then I find they're struggling with that balance all the time. It's like, you don't have to have three houses, 18 cars, you know, 22 activities for every child, a lake house, a a ski house, you know, like your life could be simpler 
and maybe even, you know, feel slower in a way that could be positive. It's, Mm -hmm. and yeah, I think allowing your children to see the different areas of success. Like I think of success in terms of like, there's physical success. Like, are you healthy? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you, you know, do you have spiritual success? Like, are you kind of content and, you know, are you, I like to think of intellectual success. Are you learning? Do you feel challenged a lot? Because, you know, I personally love to learn. I mean, and I know everyone has different tolerances for those things, you know, but in family success, you know, are you having good relationships with your family, you know, and are those rewarding? And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at success, I think. I agree. I like your yardstick and I think it applies in all aspects of life, including including your family and who your friends are, how you move around in the world outside of your job, your leisure activities. And I think there is a lot to be said for not feeling frenzied in search of this material possession that's somehow going to solve all your problems. I bet if we did have a material possession that would solve all our problems, that person would be a bazillionaire and we would all have whatever this thing is. And then we'd have no problems. <laughs> so yeah, don't think that's possible. And I think as a mom of older children, like we have, it's been very interesting to watch that development of do your children still want to spend time with you, even though they're in this young adult stage and they're all like going on with their lives. Like that to me is such a, a good sign of family success is that, you know, wanting to spend time, wanting to eat dinners together, go on trips together, you know, do things together. And, you know, no, may we not be buying all kinds of things for them, but being able to spend time together and enjoy that time, I have found to be really rewarding, especially after those teen years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Um, I have some trepidation about those teen years, but they're coming. They are coming for you fast and furious. I know, I know. I have to say, like, I have a weird perspective. I mean, obviously, I went through a lot of them. So, you know, you learn over time for sure. I think one of the things that is so helpful in teen years is to really use that time for your own self-improvement, like really focus on, you know, how do you get your ego out of all things, you know, where you're not engaging in any kind of power struggle. You know what I mean? Like, and also turning that mirror on yourself, like when your teen is acting or doing really being like, you know, what might I be doing that's contributing to this? Like, you know, am I, you know, rushing them along in the morning when they are not a morning person or, you know, like some of the things, but really taking a step back. But then also I found really giving your teens agency around what they're doing. And I mean, having some of the most frank conversations and being that parent where your children will call you up and tell you anything. Like they know that in, I mean, they'll say like, mom, I'm just signed up for a party, you know, across town and we're inviting a hundred people. We rented an Airbnb and they're telling you this in advance of the party because they want to think through what potential liability could I have if this goes wrong? And, you know, as a parent, you're like, okay, this is probably your worst idea, but it's probably going to happen in some context anyway. So good that you're talking about the liability. And then when that liability does happen, you can say, yeah, we talked about that, you know, good luck working that out. 
you know, let me know what you decided to do in fixing that. Because a lot of this stuff goes down whether you want it to or not. And so I think that was probably the biggest lesson for me was being that parent that they could say anything to. And it was very helpful in just knowing that they were safe, you know, because that I think becomes such a concern as a parent is, you know, just are they safe? I mean, and I don't know about you as a teenager, but I mean, teenagers can push some, you know, boundaries and that's what they should do in many ways. You know, that's part of their development. But I mean, there's some real safety things. And I think having such an open relationship with your children gives such a peace of mind in that safety realm. I mean, I was the mom who was always called, Elise, where is so-and-so? You know, I know you know where the boys are. You know, tell me where so-and-so is. And it was a big joke. And I was always like, yeah, I do know where they are. And, you know, but, and that does help just to have some of that peace of mind. Absolutely. I really hope that I have that kind of relationship with my children where they feel that they can be honest with me no matter what the subject is, whether it's sex or drugs or money or parties. I just want them to tell me the truth and not lie and hide and put themselves in dangerous situations. I'd much rather have them feel like they can just talk to me and we can work through whatever is going on rather than sneaking around and doing something really dumb. Yeah, I think heads down, that was by far the best thing I managed to learn through parenting all these teens was, you know, having that type of open rapport and it just being, I mean, nothing was held back. Like, you know, I would get that call, you know, mom, I need to go to a doctor. Like, I think I have some, you know, situation and okay, you know, let's deal with, I mean, just anything. And, you know, my husband and I sometimes joke, he's like, okay, that was too much information, but it's like, you know, is there really anything such as too much information when you're dealing with that, especially that, you know, kind of like 15 to 19 year old. I mean, you know, it's a tough time for kids. It really is. And they need to feel like there's someone who can hear them out and who will support them without encouraging them to do dumb things, but just someone who is going to be able to listen to them and reflect back and tell them the truth and who they don't have to be afraid of telling whatever it is that's going on. And the lack of judgment, you know, really being able to set yourself aside from the judgment. I mean, that was a hard piece for me, you know, was really being able to be like, you know, just trying to truly just get out of my judgment head, out of my critical head, you know, as a mom and just be more open and accepting and like, okay, this is what you're thinking, whether I agree with it or not, you know, is not necessarily the point here. The point is helping you think through it thoroughly, you know, Mm -hmm. and helping you learn to make good decisions, you know, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I you are definitely right at that <laughs> precipice. Um, I know. I am. Yeah, you surely are. Well, you are going to be great, though, and I can't wait to see your daughter as a teenager. She is going to be a ton of fun. <laughs> She's a pistol. Oh, yeah. Well, clearly that apple did not fall far from that tree, and so <laughs> I love that. I am just so grateful you joined us. Tell our listeners, where can they find you? Tell us about where to get your book. And do you have any other projects kind of in the wings that we should know about? So they can find me on 
Facebook, Instagram, at Laura Bazelon, Twitter, at Laura Bazelon. I have a website, laurabazelon.com, and you can get all of my books there or wherever books are sold. I have a couple of projects in the works. We'll see. I'm writing another book right now, so I'm hoping to be done maybe by the end of the summer. We'll see. It's, it's, it's a little bit slow going, but I'm excited about it. And yeah, I just appreciate the opportunity to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much. Oh, I just am so excited to get to know you. I would love to see you and Eve together on a podcast. Mm, that would be fun. I think we should make that happen. <laughs> I do think it would be a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I think you both bring such interesting data and research into the conversation for women and moms. And I just think it's exciting. I love seeing all the things. It just wasn't there when I was a young mom. And, you know, I think we spent so much time internalizing, like, I must be ruining my children. You know, every time you did anything, you were like, you know, you're ruining your children. And I was like, okay, I've probably gone past the ruin stage. Like I've done it so many times. So, you know, so it's nice. So to get some, I don't know, just some data out there in the world. I think it helps women be able to, again, make better decisions. Well, I appreciate that. And it sounds like you did a wonderful job with your children. So congratulations on that. Well, thanks. And you as well. And enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks again for being with us. Of course. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Mom podcast, a production of Maximum Lawyer Media. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. See you next time.